0: Good morning, Calvary. It's always a privilege to spend some time opening up the Word of God with you. I am certainly honored to be able to do so. Welcome, if you're here in person. I'm not the typical pastor who preaches from the pulpit, but I get an opportunity every now and then. And so if this is your very first time visiting, sorry that you got second string, third string, fourth, fifth, but stick around and would love for you to come back and visit us again sometime. If you're watching online, I invited several of my buddies to watch online. And so if you are watching online and you know who you are, this is me waving at you. And so welcome, welcome to all of you. I'm glad that you're here joining us for our services. It's the Advent season, it's the third week as we talked about before. Don't you love this time of the year where we celebrate with the candles, we're reminded of all the events that go along with this time of the year. We celebrate more than just a spirit of giving and goodwill, we acknowledge together as believers the unspeakable gift of Jesus coming to us. That's what Advent means, the coming to. We didn't come to him, he came to us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together and scrub our lives up. He came to us. Or as John's gospel puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. That's a message of incomparable love. And what a message Christmas brings. I'm so grateful for it. Now, a few moments ago, you heard Julie teaching us and and, uh, speaking the words of the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53. Every Jewish child would have been very familiar with those words. They are, like I said, ancient words. They were words that would have been taught to these Jewish children um, at an early age that this passage describes the Messiah. Who is that? Well, Messiah literally means anointed one. And in Jewish culture, an anointed one could have been a person who fulfilled one of three offices that were directly answerable to God. That's a prophet or a priest or a king. And we know, of course, that Jesus fulfilled all three. This anointed one, this Messiah, this promised son of God, they knew centuries ago would come as this suffering servant to save his people. I think what's remarkable about this passage is that it's such an amazingly accurate depiction of Jesus' death on the cross. And what you and I fail to realize sometimes is that these words were actually written some 700 years, Dan mentioned that last week, some 700 years before Jesus actually died on the cross. That gives us a bit of an underlying tone to this text. It's a bit of overstatement by understatement. It's one of my favorite illustrations of a very specific literary technique called apophysis, which is emphasis by omission. Now, before you wonder, what in the world, where'd you get that? I'm not making words up, I promise. Even though you might not be familiar with this term, you probably understand the idea intuitively. It's when we intentionally avoid talking about something because we want to draw attention to it. It's like fishing for a compliment. Oh, I'm really not that big of a deal hint, hint, hint. I'm not doing that now. I am demonstrating what some people might do. You and I would never do such a thing. It's when we're fishing for a compliment. It might be when we're hinting at a Christmas idea without actually asking for it. Man, honey, I got a friend that got this incredibly expensive pickleball paddle. Wow. Uh, I would never ask for that, sweetie. But let me just tell you, that is a wife that really loves her man. (laughs) Terrible, terrible, shameless, right? That is not me, sweetie. Just so you know, that's what some people would say. Of course, married minutes, your wife dressing up to go out for the night and saying, "How do I look?" There is only one answer to that question. A couple of synonyms that you could use: beautiful, dazzling, fantastic. Men, just to be clear, there is no other answer. I don't care what's going on in your mind. That's the only answer. And if you don't get to it quickly. You show any hesitation whatsoever, you may be sleeping on the couch, so I'm just here to help you with that. We understand the principle of emphasis by omission. Even the Word of God uses apophysis in a few other places. In fact, there's another great example of apophysis in a book of the Bible. Did you know that there's a whole book, one with ten chapters, where the name of God is never mentioned? Think of that. One whole book of the Bible where you won't even find The name of God. Not even once. Not Lord. Not any of his names. Do you happen to know which book of the Bible it is? Yeah. Some of you know. It's the Old Testament book of Esther. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do it. It's a story filled with intrigue and plot twists because we see God at work behind the scenes to save his people. And he uses the efforts of a faithful young Jewish queen named Esther. Now, here's the thing about the book. You're going to notice God's presence throughout It's undeniably obvious. But there's not even a single occurrence of his name. That's apophysis. Emphasis by omission. And it's exactly what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 53. Let me explain. Take a look at this graphic. See all these words? All 25 of them were pulled directly from the text of Isaiah 53. If the only... Knowledge you had of this passage was based solely on those words. What would you expect the theme of this chapter to be? What might you think that the undercurrent would would look like? What would you expect? Probably something kind of dark, dismal, perhaps even cruel, right? But the striking thing is that here's a chapter that emphasizes a defining characteristic of God without ever even using the term. Because Isaiah 53 points dramatically to the love of Christ, the suffering servant. But guess what word you won't find? Love. It's not even mentioned here, not even once, but it's undeniably there. And I'm looking out and I'm seeing everyone scanning this passage. Keep looking. It's not there, I promise. You won't find the word love there. But that's part of what makes the love of God so different from the love of man. It is overwhelmingly understated. You see, even if we were to talk all about the love of God, I don't think we would ever plumb its depths. Songs have been written about attempting to describe the love of God and no matter how much you try to describe it, it's always an understatement. Because the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star reaches to the lowest hell. I love how the words of that song that some of you recognize in one of the Verses use, uses picturesque language. Could we with ink the oceans fill, were the sky with parchment made? where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. No matter what it is that we do to, to describe the love of God, to attempt that description, it falls short. It's overwhelmingly understated. Now, during the holiday season, our hearts bend toward themes like peace on earth, goodwill among men, love for others. We draw a lot of attention to being generous, giving to those in need at Christmas time. And let me tell you, all those things are so needed. I am so grateful for that, that generosity. They're all good ideas with good intentions, I believe. But at best, these efforts reflect a temporary conditional love. I give when I can. I give to those when they're needy, and when they're not, I don't. I give during the season, but maybe not all the time. But that's not the case with the love of God through Jesus. It's rock solid, it's consistent, and it's enduring. It's the undercurrent of the character of God. Think of this, out of all of God's attributes, love is the only one in Scripture used to define him. God is. Now, look all the way through your Bible. You won't find God is peace or God is hope or God is joy. All those things are true about him, but you won't find them defining him. Now, you'll find that he's a God of hope, a God of peace. But the only characteristic in all of the word of God that you'll find God is attached to is love. In 1 John chapter 4, both verses 8 and 16, we read, God is love. It literally defines him. And that's what Isaiah is pointing out in this chapter. See it as though every verse is proclaiming that love has come. Why would he do these things? Why would he leave his home in heaven? Why would he sacrifice himself? Why would he offer up his life for the lives of many? Why, why, why? It's as though every verse screams out, love has come. So let's look at it briefly together. Notice in verses 1 through 3 how Christ loved a world that rejected him. Now that's extreme love. You see, for centuries, the nation of Israel had been waiting in anticipation for this promised Messiah. But when Jesus arrived, many people didn't recognize him. They couldn't imagine that this baby born to a poor family would ever become a king. He lived a largely ordinary childhood, except for a few incidents that are mentioned in Scripture. Nothing special. Then when he eventually began his earthly ministry at around 30 years old, He certainly didn't match the description that had been given to Mary by the angel Gabriel. Do you remember from Luke 1? The angel Gabriel told Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That is, he's going to sit on the throne of David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's over all of Israel, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. All of these great kings who had come, many of them ruling in majesty and might, all of them had endings. But of his kingdom, there will never be an end. This is the Messiah, the anointed one. The suffering servant predicted in Isaiah 53 that people were anticipating. So to the Jewish people, this sounded like a majestic man with broad shoulders, a fearless, confident swagger, right? The kind of guy who could literally take a bull by the horns. Certainly, at the very least, he would take the Roman Empire and the rest of the world by storm. Instead, Jesus, the true Son of God, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, wandered around the countryside with 12 blue-collar men of no particular significance spent most of his time helping the down and out of society. He certainly didn't match the description people had formed in their minds, so he was widely renounced. He faced opposition everywhere he went, despite his many miracles and all the authoritative teaching that he did. Instead, this passage tells us, take a look at verse 3, he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. What do those words mean? Well, think first of this unimaginable irony. God's only son, the very expression of his love. He was the one who was denied even the smallest bit of acceptance in return. See, in this passage, the word despise means to devalue and to esteem means to respect so Christ was devalued and disrespected it's as though he was discredited completely you're not the Messiah what was his response to those who turned him down well he gave the ultimate expression of love which is acceptance he met people where they were he didn't wait for them to get their lives in order he didn't wait for them to make sure that everything was all settled and all was good All right, now, now I'll come to you in love. Quite the opposite. He told everyone, come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Where he was met with rejection, he offered acceptance. Come, anyone who thirsts. He told the woman at the well, I'll give you water that will cause you never to thirst again. Seek me, find me. And yet he was rejected, and sadly, many still reject Jesus today. Isaiah 53 prophesied that it would happen in Jesus' day, and it still does today. Many today see him a little differently. He's viewed as an adorable character in a nativity scene, right? Some might see him as a legend who makes for poignant storytelling, but little else. Yet, what does the Word of God call him? In this same book of Isaiah, In fact, I think Pastor Dan last week mentioned from Isaiah 9 that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Think of this. He is the one who carries the governments of the world on his shoulder like you would carry a bird. The governments of the world are so minuscule to him it's as though he could carry them on his shoulder. The one before whom one day Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he truly is Lord. That's how Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 put it. So, friends, may we call ourselves and the world around us to reject this loving king no more. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. This suffering servant who was rejected <clears throat> loved us despite that rejection, particularly loved us, pardon <clears throat> me, because of that rejection. He saw a needy people. But secondly, notice with me, if you would, that Christ loved a world that tortured him. Now, let me just warn you that the description in verses 4 through 9, that's got to be one of the the most emotionally difficult texts in all of Scripture to read. You see, it's a, a graphic description of the punishment that Jesus endured when he sacrificed his life on a criminal's cross. Think of that. Was not, you and I wear crosses today to show our faith. No one in Jesus' day would have worn a cross. It was a shameful thing to be punished. It was the cruelest form of Roman punishment known, agonizing and painful. I don't mean to be crass or or base, but friends, it would be like us making jewelry out of a, a gallows or out of an electric chair. No one would do that. It's shameful. And so it was with the cross. You see, the truest expression of love at Christmas is not presence under a tree. No, it's the presence of Christ on a tree a cross outside Jerusalem so long ago. You see, the reason that he suffered and died, friends, was for your sins and for mine. He's the greatest gift of all. Isaiah goes on to describe it well in verses 4 and 5 by pointing out that he was stricken. Look at these words. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was pierced, crushed. As if the ridicule of so many wasn't enough, he also endured an agonizingly painful death. And worst of all, he didn't deserve any of it. Verse 9 points out that he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was innocent like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. You see it there in verse 7? Instead, Isaiah tells us, he suffered for our guilt. He endured our griefs. He bore our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Friends, in short, he bore our sin. Why was it that he would endure such torture? Why go through all of that? Because of the severity of my sin and yours. The Bible tells us that all of the sin of mankind was on his back. So much so that as he hung on that cross, God had to turn his back. He couldn't even look on him because of the severity of the sin that deserves death as punishment. See, going through that agony was an undeniable expression of love. The Apostle Paul echoed this sentiment in his letter to the church in Rome when he said, God shows his love for us, or proves, or some translations use the word commends. He goes out of his way to prove it to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we figuratively were collectively shaking our fists in the face of God, The Bible reminds us of our corruption. There's none that does good, not even one. We don't even understand it. And even if we did, we don't seek him out. That's the progression of the explanation of our sin in Romans 3. We're so completely corrupted by our sinful habits that we deserve the death sentence as a punishment, as the Bible describes it. Romans 6 puts it this way, the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we were at our worst, God gave us his best. Christ took this penalty for us, or as Isaiah puts it here in verse 5, with his wounds, we are, read that word, see it, healed. It's the ultimate proof of his love. You and I understand, don't we, friends, that it's one thing to say I love you, but Christ demonstrated his love through his actions. Not only when we were undeserving, but when we were completely defiant. Now, that is true love. Now, a few weeks ago, I set up a super brief survey. Some of you remember it, and thank you to those who responded. It was for married people, and I I stuck the link on our Slack channel, and I asked three basic questions. I said, first of all, how long have you been married? Secondly, did you expect that they loved you before they actually used the literal words? And then thirdly, what made you realize that they loved you? So again, I'm grateful for all those who responded, but according to our small sampling, not thorough, not ready to submit this to Gallup for a poll yet, but according to our small informal sampling, over 80% of you were convinced that your significant other loved you before they ever uttered the words. I think it's pretty remarkable, but even more amazing to me was their answer to the question, how did you know? What was it that sealed it for you? I want to show you some of the responses. And I promised anonymity, so I'm not going to point anybody out. But take a look at some of the responses. It was less of a moment, more of a culmination of things. It was the little things that showed how he was thinking of me. The way we prioritized our relationship. Another person wrote that it was a general pattern of actions, attitudes, service. Do you see the common thread in all of those? The most profound expressions of love are confirmed in actions more than in words. I think that this is the reason that Christ's enduring of rejection and torture speaks so much more to the love of God than all of the many Bible verses that proclaim God's love. Look throughout the Old and New Testaments both. You'll find thousands of verses that describe the enduring love of God. His mercy endures forever. The love of God is great and all those things are true. But what makes it so much more emphatic is that Christ's suffering and his sacrifice reveal a love that acts, not just a love that speaks. Now, thankfully, he does speak to us through his love and through his word. I believe that his love still speaks to us today in this season of peace and goodwill. See love at work, see more than just a fabled story from a lowly manger in a far off place. See the king who endured the agonizing penalty of sin for you, for me, for the world. See the one who gave his life as a ransom or a payment for many. That's how Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 puts it. See the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Because Christ loved a world that rejected him, and Christ loved a world that tortured him. Notice lastly with me, if you would please, though, in these last few verses, 10 through 12, that Christ loved a world that needed him. The Bible makes it clear that none of our good work can earn us the approval of God. You see, Jesus' sacrifice would have been in vain if it was possible for us to earn our own way. You know, there's a lot of ways that people try to gain access to the God who exists in the life after this one. Those who believe that there is a life after this one, as the Bible teaches, struggle in various ways to find out how to achieve it and how it is that we gain access to the God who is sovereign. Well, the Bible makes it clear that none of our good works can earn the approval of God. On the contrary, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's right here in the same book of Isaiah. That's Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. Our righteous deeds are polluted. One translation says that they're filthy rags. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, says that by works of the law, no matter how good you are, no matter how much you try to obey all of these humane guidelines, no matter how much you try to just be a good person, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. In stark contrast, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3, 16. Oftentimes you'll see John 3, verse 16 on a big sign at the end, in the back of the end zone of a, a football game, right? And I know we kind of smile and nod like that's silly, but let me tell you something that's not silly. Christ died for you. That whoever it is that would believe in him would not perish. No amount of works, no amount of of seeking God in whatever way you would like to fill in that blank. According to Jesus' own words in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we live in a world where there's a lot of religious methodology. Can I remind you of something? When Jesus, the baby in the manger, walked the earth, In bodily form, he opposed religion. Now hear me, hear me. He opposed religion, or at least the outward conforming side of religion. Because friends, our faith is not about religion. Our faith is not about finding who has the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not about a religion. It really is about a relationship with him, and that's what God has provided for us. Isaiah makes it clear that this world needed this suffering Savior. Verse 11 points out that Jesus would make many to be accounted righteous. See it there? He would make many to be accounted righteous, and he'll bear their iniquities. And further in verse 12, he bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressors. There was no one else but God who could have paid that awful penalty by claiming victory over sin and death like Jesus did. Isaiah reminds us that he truly is God. You know why? Because he didn't remain in the grave. Verse 10, take a look at the words, reminds us that he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days, he'll extend his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He did not stay dead because he is God. The world needs him, and only his death will suffice because he is God. None of my righteous works, none of my way of earning the approval of God, none of that appeases him, only Jesus. Friends, this is what we call the gospel. This is what Isaiah 53 is pointing to when he points to this suffering Savior. Who is this? Who is this king that he would suffer and die, that he would rise from the dead, that he would grant his followers access to God the Father, who indeed we sang about him just a few moments ago? This. This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard, angels sing, haste, haste to bring him Lord! hurry up and praise him, the babe, the son of Mary. The truth is, friends, we need him today more than ever. My prayer for all of us this Christmas season is that we might see the baby in the manger as the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, the king of glory. Love come down to earth, God in the flesh. Do you know him? Do you know him? Not just as a character in a story, but as the one with whom you have secured your eternal destiny because you've received him as your Savior. You recognize that he is truly the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father but by him. It's not about what church, what denomination. Fill in the blank however you wish. It is about what you do with Jesus. What will you do, friends, with him? I want to close with the words to one of my favorite Christmas praise and worship songs. And yet, I don't know if you've listened to it much. I haven't heard it in quite some time. But these words call to mind some of the most precious memories I have of the love that Jesus has for us and how it's expressed here in Isaiah 53. If you've never listened to How Many Kings by a Canadian band called Down Here, I encourage you, find it on your favorite music platform and then put it on repeat. Meditate on these beautiful words. Let me show them to you. How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that's torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one. Did that for me. Do you know him? Do you know him? Maybe this Christmas will be for you a very different Christmas because you did more than open gifts and celebrate. Maybe a relationship with Jesus for you, for someone you know. The greatest expression of love, love come down, maybe for you this Christmas is one to remember because of your life, your heart being transformed by this king. Would you bow with me? God, thank you so much for this time. I praise you for these friends. Lord, I praise you for the truth of the text here in Isaiah 53. God, I'm overwhelmed by the love of Jesus that he would suffer like that for me. That he would leave his home in heaven, that he would come and live among us, live like us, experience all the pain and the agony that he did. And there's one reason, it's for me, it's for the world. It's for those who come to know him, God, and for all these things we say simply, thank you. God, you're so gracious. Before I finish the prayer, friends, let me just let you know of one thing that when we're done with the service, I'll be up front. The pastors will be up front. Maybe there's something that we've talked about this morning that you want to ask more about. Maybe there's some part of you that questions, all right, I need to know more. What's going on here? Explain this to me. I've got questions. Can I assure you that the word of God has answers? Can I open it up with you? Maybe today, for you. Maybe today becomes the day where your relationship with Jesus begins. So Father, thank you again. Thank you for this love of your son. I pray that any who don't know him today might come to you, God. Thank you. Thank you that you sent your son to be rejected, to be tortured, for those in need like me. And I pray, God, that today If there's any here who don't, if there's any watching who don't know what it means to have a relationship with him today, might be a day where a difference is made. God, they come to you. So strengthen us. We love you. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.